This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Star Stuff. This is your host, Cody Half Moon. And today we're going to be talking about cultural astronomy with a cultural astronomer, Dr. Daniel Adams. Hi, Danielle. Hello. And, um, you know, I have to be on my best behavior because Danielle is also our chief marketing and revenue officer, a.k.a. my boss. (laughs) 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 So I will be um, I will be an angel today. What's cultural astronomy? I know uh, we you get asked that a lot. It's one of our our, our pillars of research here at Lowell, um, since you introduced that to us. So maybe a little bit of background about what that is. Yeah, uh, quite simply, it's the anthropology of astronomy. Um, so whereas most astronomers and planetary scientists look at uh, the night sky and study the objects that are in space, Uh, I look at the people who um, look at the night sky. So uh, my interest is in how uh, societies connect to the night sky, um, how they connect the dots between the stars and uh, draw their own constellations and tell their own stories. I remember, uh, I think it was my, was it my interview when we were sitting outside of the Godo and we were I think we talked for like two hours about cultural astronomy. It's so fascinating. It's it's very uh, very much into like the, the people who who you know the storytellers behind the constellations. Yeah, um, in cultural astronomy, we often use the plural referring to astronomy. So we talk about astronomies um, because Ooh, I like that. yeah, each, each culture. Uh, has or has had in the past uh, an astronomy, uh, which if you go to the Greek, astronomy literally means uh, star arranging or star organizing. Um, So it's just a way of of organizing um, the night sky. And um, you can take observations through, you know, a four meter telescope like we have at the Lowell Discovery Telescope or you can take observations with the unaided eye, um, watching how stars move through the night or from season to season. You know, I had no idea that that's what astronomy meant. That's fascinating. And I love pluralizing words when I can. So I'm really happy about this conversation. <laughs> so, yeah. um, how did you get into, into cultural astronomy? I'm curious how you found your way. I mean, I, I, I kind of know the story, but I want our listeners to know because it's really interesting how astronomers find their path. Yeah, um, my path was uh, really winding and twisted, uh, which... Um, I enjoy um, recounting the story of because, um, you know, sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves when we're younger um, to know exactly what we want to do. And um, oftentimes we don't see um, the unexpected things that get us to a, a place better than we would have imagined. Um, I so, love that. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
um, my journey starts um, when I was really young and uh, I received a telescope when I was seven years old uh, from my grandmother. And I don't know if she um, uh, was taking a chance or if she already saw um, interest in astronomy from me. Um, but I started uh, observing the night sky and making drawings at the telescope, uh, kind of like our friend Clyde Tombaugh uh, way back when. And um, uh, I, you know, by the time I was in grade school, I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. Um, and so um, I was aimed at that. I was um, certain I was going to go to Caltech um, because um, as a 10-year-old or so, that's um, what I heard was the best place to study astronomy. Um, and uh, um, as I uh, progressed, uh, in high school, I got uh, disillusioned. Um, I was doing an uh, internship in superconductivity at Rutgers University. I grew up in New Jersey. And um, uh, superconductivity was the closest I could get to physics or astronomy, but uh, that department was upstairs in the same building. And so I got to talk to uh, real-life astronomers a few times, and I learned that they only observed a few nights a year and spent the rest of their time analyzing data. And that's not really what did it for me. Um, I wanted the connection with the sky. Um, and so um, I got disillusioned, uh, went on a different path. Um, uh, for my undergrad, I went to a, a small Christian college and uh, studied theology. Um, and then from there, I did um, a master's in uh, cultural anthropology. And um, uh in between the two, I'd, I'd gone to Morocco um, for a, a week or so, and um, I really got fascinated by um, Arabic and the culture, and I ended up um, uh, focusing on um, uh, Arabic as my language for that uh, master's degree and uh, went to um, Beirut, Lebanon, and also to um, uh, Morocco for summer language study. Um, and then uh, I went to uh, Beirut, to the American University, uh, to study Arabic literature and just uh, get deeper into Arabic. Uh, I figured um, if I'd studied the hardest kind of Arabic, everything else would be easy. Um, and so I, I dove into pre-Islamic poetry. Um, Pre-Islamic poetry? Pre-Islamic poetry, yeah. yeah. So it's okay. the um, the poetry that uh, uh, was, you know, produced um, by poets uh, before the advent of Islam in the early 600s. And... Um, uh, there, that is considered, you know, among the hardest uh, elements of the language. Um, the grammar is difficult. Uh, the words are often archaic. Um, so, yeah. So I figured, you know, if I did that, then I could 
um, easily understand a modern news broadcast. Um, but easily, uh, <laughs> yeah, easily, <laughs> relatively so. Um, but my big moment of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, revelation or my paradigm shift there happened when I was in um, uh, a poetry class. And one of my, or the professor who was uh, teaching the class, um, uh, would sometimes come across a word that had a meaning, but he'd say that here, um, this meant a star. Um, and there was some bright star in the sky. He wasn't sure where it was, but it was a bright star. And about the third time that happened, I thought, you know, <laughs> I need to figure out what is happening here. Like, where are these stars and what are they? And I had grown up um, as an amateur astronomer. So, you know, I knew the star names, um, but some of these were completely unfamiliar to me. So I dug into um, the literature I could find, and I found that the poets were actually using the uh, literal positions of the stars to set the um, figurative or to set the, the seasonal time frame for the poetry. Um, and that blew my mind. And uh, I came back to the class and shared what I had found. And, um, you know, one of, one of the hard things about the field is that um, you have to be con conversant in observational astronomy and in the culture and language um, of uh, the people that you're studying. And so there's not a lot of people who do Arabic and astronomy. Um, and so, you know, here I was talking with, uh, you know, uh, students and scholars of Arabic who didn't know the astronomy and didn't know that, you know, where the stars were in the sky actually had a huge impact. Um, for example, uh, one of the, the pieces um, that we looked into was from uh, – an early Islamic poet named Dhur Ruma. Uh, he died in 735. Uh, and there was a piece of, of poetry where he says, um, well, instead of saying uh, in October, um, the apparition of my beloved Maya came to me at the end of the night. He used the stars. And so he said, uh, the apparition of my beloved Maya came to me when the hands of Thuraya reach for the western places of sunset, uh, which would be at the end of the night. And uh, Thuraya is um, the Arabic term for the Pleiades star cluster. It was the most renowned star grouping in Arabian astronomy. And um, that set into the West and had um, two arms, um, uh, chains of stars on either side that curved. And so uh, that whole kind of grouping set into the Western horizon at the end of the night in October. Um, so by using this, this star name, um, uh, the poet, 
is using knowledge that would have been um, present in the community. And you don't have to say October, <laughs> you say when the star grouping sets at the end of the night mm-hmm. into the West. So that, that just set me on this whole different course. And um, I applied for PhD programs and um, uh, studied um, for my PhD at the University of Arizona. And um, it was actually a perfect place uh, because it's uh, renowned in astronomy and anthropology and um, Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. So it was the perfect combination for me to um, do this really interdisciplinary course of study. So that's kind of how it all got started. And um, I've been uh, deep into indigenous Arabian astronomy ever since. That's amazing. And I love that, like, I love the almost like detective kind of mindset where you were just reading that poem and you're like, wait a second, I can science this. (laughs) (laughs) I can science this literature, uh, which is super fun. We were talking before about, I think I was calling it Arabic astronomy, and you were like, well, actually, it's Arabian astronomy. Um, So I thought that was was interesting. You'd said, was it Arabic is the language? I'm not going to pretend to remember what you said. (laughs) Yeah. um, uh, (laughs) Arabic describes the language. Um, Arab describes the people. And Arabian describes the geographical region. So... Uh, I use the term indigenous Arabian astronomy um, uh, to acknowledge that this is anchored in the Arabian Peninsula in the Middle East. Got it. And um, there are a lot of our stars are still named from their original like indigenous Arabian astronomy roots, right? Yeah, so many. Basically, in the night sky, Uh, Most of the star names that we use are Arabic in origin. Um, Some of them are Arabic descriptions of Greek astronomy and Greek uh, sky pictures or constellations. And others are Arabic descriptions of indigenous Arabian astronomy. Um, So I'll give you uh, a couple examples uh, that you can see right now. here in December. Uh, So if you go outside after sunset, um, this right now is when we have just gorgeous uh, star fields from the the winter Milky Way. Um, The star cluster uh, that I mentioned, the Pleiades in Arabic is Afuraya. Um, That doesn't survive in our modern uh, star names, but The next bright star is a red star named Aldebaran. And in Arabic, it's really similar. It's Adabaran, and it means the follower. So it's the follower of Athuraya, uh, the Pleiades star cluster. Uh, And there's a little story that goes with that, that the two were engaged. Uh, Adabaran is a male figure, and Athuraya is a female figure. Uh, They were engaged. Uh, engaged, but they could never get together because another bright star named Al Aryuk, uh, which means the 
preventer or the impeder uh, prevented the two from getting together. Uh, and that bright star uh, we know in Greek astronomy as Capella. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a little, you know, little love triangle or so. Um, but Sounds Adebron, like Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and like the stories, they're awesome. Um, one of the things I love about cultural astronomy is that um, at the same latitude, we see the same sky. So, you know, here in Flagstaff, we're at 40, um, dang it, uh, 35.2 degrees north, I think. And um, uh, if you trace that line all around the globe, plus or minus, you know, five degrees, 10 degrees, um, we see pretty much the same sky. And so uh, this, you know, is an interesting field where uh, all the points of light are the same. So we, in essence, have a control. And then all the difference uh, we see across cultures and time in the stories that are told and the names that are chosen for the stars this just comes out of pure culture. Um, so it's, it's really neat uh, to compare uh, across those cultures. Um, That's awesome. And, oh, I'll, I'll give you a few other examples too, because um, right after Aldebaran is Orion. And in indigenous Arabian astronomy, Orion was a female figure, um, Al-Jozat. And uh, the name Al-Jozat has something to do with um, being in the middle of something. And um, I think that uh, in its earliest form, it referred to uh, just the three stars um, or even the central star of the three stars that we know as the belt of Orion today. Um, because, uh, it's an almost perfect straight line and almost equidistant um, among the three stars. So it's a star in the middle of two other stars that has almost perfect symmetry. Um, and over time, that figure uh, grew, uh, like we see in, in other constellations in Arabian astronomy. Um, and she got uh, arms and feet and head and hair and a bow and footstools, all different things. Um, so a star name that you may know, Rigel, uh, in Arabic is Rijl, which means foot. So this is originally the foot of Al-Jozat, not the foot of Orion. Um, that name was transferred to Orion, uh, after the introduction of Greek astronomy. And then on the other side of, um, the figure of Orion is a bright red star, uh, that today we call um, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or there's probably 10 different ways to pronounce it um, because they're all wrong. Um, the Arabic oh. originally, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, no one knows how to pronounce that name um, because it's, it's um, uh, corrupted from the Arabic originally. That's why you have to say it three times. <laughs> oh yeah. Don't do that. We'll have big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, originally, this was Yed Al-Jozat, uh, so the hand of Al-Jozat. Um, 
And in Arabic, mm-hmm. uh, it's a script language, and there are dots above and below that define uh, consonants, mostly uh, some long vowels as well, and other diacritical marks that are mostly vowels. Um, but two dots make a Y sound. One dot makes a B sound. And somewhere in the the transcriptions of the manuscripts over time, um, Yed el-Jozat was mistranscribed with just one dot, which turns it into Bet el-Jozat. Um, Someone ran out of ink. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, but you can see how that one dot changes the sound, and that's closer mm-hmm. to our um, Beetlejuice battle shows. Mm-hmm. You can see how it gets there from Yed El Shozat. So editors are important, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Trust the <Yeah>. editor. <laughs> well, and I love that typo changed our pop culture. <laughs> well, and interestingly, uh, uh, some years ago, I was. Um, I think it was in Lebanon, I found a, um, a book in Arabic about uh, astronomy, uh, modern astronomy. And uh, what they had done is in the book, they had then re-transliterated, um, uh, I guess, um, Beetlejuice into Arabic, uh, making it um, Beit al-Qaus, which is the home of the bow it, or the, you know, it's the arm that holds the bow, which is correct, but it's not the original Arabic. So it went from the hand of El into Betelgeuse in Latin uh, script and then back into Arabic as um, the hand of the, or the uh, home of the bow. So, um, you know, mm. Culture changes over time, and uh, you know that's part of the mystery too. Is uh, trying to unearth uh, how things got the way they are. Gotcha. That's fascinating. I I think that's it's so interesting too, and I love the balance that it gives us at Lowell, and especially it's useful in in marketing. But um, you know, sometimes they'll say like, "We'll have our planetary, uh, you know, scientists." And I feel like sometimes they're like, oh, I don't really know the history of like the constellations or like the people behind them. And it's so nice to have that lens at Lowell as one of our our focuses. It's just like people love it. I love it. It's so interesting because it connects us to a piece of our history, I think, that makes astronomy so much different than any other science, in my opinion. I'm biased. <laughs> but it's yeah. that, like cultural connection to our history um, in the stars that I think is so unique to this science. And, you know, I think uh, there's another connection, too, is, um, you know, here in Flagstaff, we're the world's first international dark sky city. And I love connecting cultural astronomy to dark sky preservation because a lot of the stories um, literally wouldn't exist if you couldn't see faint stars. Um, in the in the fall, there's an amazing uh, camel um, that is uh, more of a connect-the-dot kind of constellation in Arabian astronomy. 
and it looks like a camel. It has this beautiful, long, curving neck. I mean, it it is a camel, um, but you miss. It legitimately most- looks like a camel. Oh yeah! When totally. you pointed that out in your presentation, I was like, "Oh my god! How can you see anything but a camel now?" <laughs> yep, um, but you would never see it in light polluted skies. So you know, there's oh. an, an inherent connection with um, dark skies and cultural astronomy. You know, you would just have so much less um, material and cultural stories about the sky if the skies were as bright as they are today, long ago. Before we get too much out of time, because as usual, this go by so quickly, I would love it if you could talk about those astrolabes. Uh, so Danielle was in, um, she hosted an, uh, uh, like an astronomy it's called Astronomy on Tap. It actually happens throughout the U.S. Lowell also hosts one every month. And Danielle was our speaker for one. And I was super fascinated by these. I went home and like read all about them. Uh, they looked so cool and steampunk. And I was wondering if you could talk about those a little bit and what they were used for. Oh, sure. Um, so astrolabes are ancient measuring devices. Um, uh, first uh, devised by um, Greek astronomers, um, but uh, they started to be um, built um, in the Islamic period after the introduction of Greek astronomy to Arabia. And um, they're basically devices that uh, let you measure um, the altitudes of objects in the sky above the horizon. And then when you connect that with different um, charts and um, tables, then you can do a lot with those measurements. Um, You can find uh, the latitude um, of where you are on Earth. Um, You can track the progress of time. Um, And uh, part of how you use an astrolabe is um, you find a bright star and um, you cite that star, and then you make adjustments on the astrolabe um, to say that you're aligned to that star. And then that calibrates other circles and measurements on the astrolabe um, to give you other information. So um, yeah, it's, a, it's an old, old tool. Um, if any of you listening uh, have ever used a planisphere, uh, that allows you to rotate the sky and measure or align up the day with the time of night. Um, That's a core function of the astrolabes uh, long ago. Um, So yeah, um, uh, what's where that connects to uh, my research in indigenous Arabian astronomy is that um, most of the stars, at least initially, were uh, indigenous uh, Arabian star names uh, that appeared on the astrolabe. And in some of the historical works that I use as references um, in Arabic, um, mention whether a star was on the astrolabe or not. And that varied. Um, You know, some had as few as, you know, a dozen or so stars and others had, you know, 
30 or 40 stars. That's awesome. Yeah, the the astrolabes look so steampunk. They are so cool looking. Uh, I It amazes me. Like even after you explained how they worked and how people use them, it's just crazy that people could come up with this, you know, just with, I don't know, so long ago. Like I know that people were still brilliant and arguably some way more brilliant <laughs> back <laughs> in the, you know, back in the day, but just working with how little they had to come up with such amazing devices is amazing to me. Uh, I don't know the astrolabes. That was, it was so cool. I, I, I totally nerded out when you brought those pictures up and started explaining what they were. (laughs) It's neat to think too, that this was all without telescopes. Um, It's just, you know, observation and math, you know, um, and actually, that's uh, a neat piece. Um, you know, I mentioned before I grew up as an amateur astronomer. Um, I had some telescopes. Um, I built a um, a terrible telescope with a friend in high school that we called um, <laughs> Hubble Two because um, it had blurry vision. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, like uh, you see amazing magnificent things through a telescope um but when i fell into this field uh it's all uh, astronomy with the unaided eye and um you know the little part of me was a bit disappointed at first that you know oh it, it stops at you know the sixth magnitude uh for stars um but wow, there's so much you can do without a telescope. And I think um, uh, in some respects, we've lost that. Uh, we want to see deeper and deeper. And and um, that's not to take anything away from all that we can see. Um, amazing images through uh, Hubble and uh, JWST. Um, uh, but there's also something really um, uh, awe-inspiring about simply connecting directly to the night sky with your own eyes without anything in between, um, observing the stars, watching how they move, um, and connecting the dots. Um, I like to encourage uh, classes when I talk to them uh, to, you know, look at these dots in the sky. They are of varying brightnesses and colors and distances from each other. Um, It's somewhat of a random distribution of of stars in the sky, although not exactly random because we're in the galaxy. But, you know, you take all those dots and, you know, no one says the stars that make up Orion have to be Orion. You know? Yeah. They could be anything uh, based out of your imagination and the things you've learned from your culture. So I I love that part. Um, I love that you've said that too. We've actually... Um, that is a passionate rant on this podcast, specifically from John. Every time we get him on here to talk about mythos and constellations, he's like, you know, make your own. That's what is so beautiful about the the night sky. And we actually had after that, um, we had some listeners submit some of their own fun ideas for constellations, which was uh, was brilliant. So, um, you know, if you guys are inspired by this conversation 
let us know what constellations that you make up in the sky. I think, I don't know. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, where this all got started. You can imagine people using stars uh, for navigation uh, in the Arabian context. The sand dunes change. They're blown by the wind over time. And so you use stars to navigate at night through the desert. Um, especially if you're kind to your camels, um, you don't drive them during the day over long distances. Um, they're used for, um, you know, seasonal forecasting, right? So the stars have practical use. And you can imagine people sitting around the campfire saying, huh, well, what should we call that bright star? You know, it appears mm -hmm. this time every year. And then, okay, let's give it that name. And, oh, well, look at the star next to it. You know, maybe that's its hand, or maybe that's another individual entirely. And then now we have a story we're creating about the night sky. Um, and you can just imagine people at night under a campfire with no iPhones or TV to distract them, mm -hmm. and they're just connecting to the sky. So um, it's a really amazing uh, age-long tradition uh, to have that connection. We should coin the term, or maybe it's already coined, but I'm sure you've heard of like tree bathing. That's like all the rage right now. What mm -hmm. about star bathing? <laughs> yeah. Let's go bathe in some stars, um, which you can do here in Flagstaff. But uh, it really is uh, transfixing, like looking up at the night sky. It's what made me leave Houston because <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I wanted to see the stars. Once you see them in, in this capacity, it's like really hard to go back. Yeah. Um, I, I remember still um, the darkest sky I have ever seen in my life was in the high Atlas mountains of Morocco. Uh, mm. And um, I was there uh, for language study um, and uh went on a trek uh, through the mountains and at night I had to go to the bathroom. It was three in the morning, I think something like that. And I looked up and there were so many stars. It was difficult to make out any constellations um, because there were too many stars. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just magical. Yeah. It's amazing. And when you have that much starlight, um, it's not bright like the moon, but there's enough light from all those stars that it's not pitch black. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fabulous, that connection with the sky. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, what projects are you working on right now that you can, that you can talk about? Yeah. Um, my projects are not super secret, but, um, you know, okay. I wasn't sure if we could talk about the game. <laughs> I want to talk about the game real bad. Um, well, it's, uh, you know, um, I'm using Arabic. So, you know, if you can, if you know some Arabic, then you can, uh, uh, look at these things too. So, um, <clears throat> the, uh, big project I'm working on right now is, um, uh, my first book. And uh, in this, I am looking at um, uh, what's called rhymed prose. So it's like poetry, um, but there's no internal meter. And it 
comes off sounding a bit like nursery rhymes, where um, uh, here we're looking at the rising of a star in the morning before sunrise. So a star rises in the east, and then shortly after that, the light of dawn blots it out. Um, and that's called a heliacal rising, and that was used to track the progress of seasons, and especially um, seasonal changes like rains and um, floral and faunal behaviors. And so uh, there's a collection of uh, something like uh, 70 or so um, pieces of rhymed prose that connect uh, usually the rising of a star um, at the end of the night to seasonal change. So um, I'm going through that collection and translating it for the first time into English and trying to retain uh, that sense of rhyme. So I'll give you an example. Um, in the constellation uh, Scorpius, that's the Greek constellation, um, that's a really old constellation that goes back to uh, Babylonian times and perhaps earlier than that. Um, the bright red star in uh, Scorpius today uh, we call Antares. Um, it means not Mars, which I think has been talked about on uh, Star Stuff before. Yeah. Uh, in Arabian astronomy and probably before that, um, it was called the heart of the scorpion, Kalb uh, al-Aqrab. And so um, I can read you a little bit of the rhymed prose for the heart, and then I'll give the translation. Uh, but you can hear the rhyming at the end of each phrase. So in Arabic, it says, So you can hear that B sound at the end. Uh, and my translation says, When rises the scorpion, frozen is the valley round, the life of the locust is done, and the time for hoarfrost has begun. So uh, here, it's, again, kind of like a nursery rhyme. Um, it's a bit sing-songy. They're short phrases, um, but it gives you information. So when the scorpion rises, again, this is the end of the night, uh, just before the sunrise, frozen is the valley runs. So the little rivulets in the valleys freeze. So it's the early part of winter. Um, the locusts die because it's too cold for them and hoarfrost starts appearing. And so these are all descriptors of early winter. And uh, it's easy to remember because it rhymes. So the rhyme prose is, is really easy to memorize, and that means it can be transmitted orally over the period of time. Um, another example, uh, this is in an earlier stage. So, um, it's really hard <laughs> to get words to rhyme at the end uh, that reflects the meaning of the Arabic. So uh, the last one I, I mentioned was uh, rhyming with the star name, uh, Scorpion or Akrab in Arabic, um, which reflects the original rhyme prose. Uh, in this next one, um, uh, this was an earlier form where I was um, – uh, using the structure when the star rises. And so 
everything ends with rise or rises, depending on um, uh, on on the the grammar of the star name. So here in Arabic, this one says the Tala al Hararan hazalat asman washtada zaman wa wahwahal wildan. And uh, translation is when the two grumbling dogs rise, emaciated become the fat animals, the winter season intensifies, and children exhale into their hands. And I, I love this one. Um, I've not gotten it um, to the next stage of translation yet. Um, but the two grumbling dogs, oh, it's, the, it's so descriptive. Um, the two grumbling dogs are, are Red Star and Scorpius and Taris, and a star really far away from it, uh, Vega. And uh, they rise together uh, in the morning. So again, this is the same time of year, early winter. Um, and here uh, we're saying uh, the fat animals became, become emaciated because food is harder to find. Uh, the winter gets intense. But the last phrase I love because uh, it says children exhale into their hands. In Arabic, the verb is wah waha, which is mm. actually onomatopoeia. It sounds yeah. like what it is. It's when you go <sighs> blowing into your hands when you're outside yeah. on a cold day. And so it, it's just beautifully descriptive. Um, and, you know, this is so cool. It's, it's the simple collection of rhymed prose. Um, but there's so much cultural material you can get out of it and understand how people lived long ago. That's amazing. And I love descriptive literature. Um, I like writing poetry. I love descriptive poetry. So I'm pretty obsessed with that right now. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what was that poem called? Or or I guess it's not available yet because you're still translating it. Is that... Yeah, so um, uh, so again, they're not poems; they're pieces of rhymed prose, and um, they don't have names. Um, uh, a weird, uh, interesting thing to me uh, about this is that um, there's no attribution for this. Um, uh, rhyme prose generally was uh, a common uh, linguistic form in pre-Islamic Arabia and continued into Islamic. Um, uh, the Islamic period. Um, but for this, these uh, pieces of rhyme prose about the stars, there's no attribution. There's no single author claiming credit. There are people who transmit the collections, mm -hmm. um, but there's no authorship. And so, you know, over time you can see that um, phrases are lost or phrases are added into the piece of rhymed prose and so it's, it's kind of like it's crowdsourced where over time, you know, something else that rhymes and makes sense with the, the season um, just gets added on. And if people like it, it sticks and that gets transmitted. Um, so, it, yeah, it's a, it's a really neat um, element uh, and, and way of uh, seeing how pieces of literature can sort of be crowdsourced. I love that so much. It's <laughs> so cool. Um, so we are out of time, actually. Um, I was not surprised. I 
<laughs> I think we even mentioned before, like, we're just going to sit here and talk about literature for as long as <laughs> the clock will let us. Um, but if anyone has any questions about this, how can they get in contact with you aside from our, you know, Discord server where we would pass that on to you? Yeah. Um, uh, if you go to lol.edu, uh, you can find me in the staff directory. Uh, send me an email. Uh, that's uh, dadams at lol.edu. Uh, also, I have um, a website that I developed for my um, uh, NASA Space Grant Graduate Fellowship um, some years ago um, that has some good starting information about um, uh, some elements of uh, Arabian astronomy. And you can find that at onesky.arizona.edu. Um, so those will get you started and uh, happy to chat with, with folks who have uh, interest there. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, take it from us. If you want to talk about cultural astronomy with Danielle, <laughs> she is always open to it. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, catch us on Discord if you have any questions for us or suggestions for uh, future episodes. We are very quickly leading up here to season two. So look out for that. We will be on YouTube going from radio to TV now, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm definitely uh, getting the video killed the radio star vibes because I do not like being in front of the camera. But <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone stay tuned for that. And thank you so much, Danielle, for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We'll have to get you on season two so we can share some images of these constellations. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>